Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. Uh, Nizar is not with us this week. He's off in Turkey, but we have a special guest, Tamor Asari. Welcome, Tamor. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, always a pleasure to come on. Yeah, yeah you, you've been with us several times. Uh, so we, we appreciate you coming on and, and filling in. Uh, we, we've got a lot to talk about. It's been a while since we did a podcast. Uh, so we're not going to hit everything, right, that's been going on since. But there are a few major things that we need to talk about. And then the big thing that we need to talk about is something that you've been reporting on extensively at Al Jazeera, and that is the investigation into the port. Right. Um, <laughs> all of the fun stuff that goes along with that. Yeah, as 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 we, as we know this year, you know, it's it's been quite a quiet year. So actually, I think we could wrap this up in about five minutes. Like, we can, we can hit, all, hit all the major points. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, basically, things are going pretty well, uh, exactly as they should. Um, everyone is abiding by laws and regulations, and we shouldn't have an answer very soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. It, it, it only happened on August 4th. You know, that's, uh, I, I'm sure it will all come to a conclusion very soon. But before we get into that, uh, quickly, some news. We, we should talk about what happened yesterday in Hamra with the students protesting. It was this day of rage they had called. Um, and I, I guess a few hundred students and other people showed up in Hamra because that's where both AUB and LAUR and both of those universities introduced this massive hike in tuition uh, quite recently, basically uh, more than doubling how much people have to pay in Lira. So instead of, they, they, these universities price their tuition in dollars, but most people pay in Lira. It, so it makes a very big difference what exchange rate you're using. And usually that's the official exchange rate. 1500 thereabouts, but both AUB and LAU because of the financial crisis said, oh, we can't do that anymore. We need to go up to the so-called bank rate of 3,900, which, I mean, if you have to pay 1,500 lira for every dollar that you owe, and then suddenly that becomes, you have to pay 3,900, that is like 2.6 times more money that is coming out of your pocket and going to these elite institutions that have lots of money. Uh, so you can see why people would be angry. Not only is this, does it cut off educational access for certain people, although these universities say that they are doing as much as they can, as far as financial aid goes, to make sure that the impact on students is limited. Uh, but, but at the same time, you know that it, it isn't going to catch everyone. People are still going to have a harder time. You'll have students uh, probably leaving the universities because they can't afford to pay anything anymore. And like I said, this money is going towards these very wealthy institutions. Yeah. And so just what it means, like in terms of the average person, if, if you look at average tuition at AUB in the past years, it was already increasing every year. But last year it was 35 million lira. After this increase, it's going to be 92.3 million lira, the average tuition at AUB. And <laughs> the, the minimum wage in Lebanon equates to around 8 million per year. So you're going to have to save up for more than 10 years to send your kids to AUB, which is just impossible. So basically, it's part of this growing stratification uh, between the very rich and the ultra poor in Lebanon. And that category of ultra poor people who really can't afford anything anymore is just increasing all the time. These tuition hikes uh, come at sort of this like kind of uh, really, really important moment for universities at large in Lebanon, um, where basically we've been seeing the series of big election wins by independent students. And so maybe taken individually, 
uh, you know, you wouldn't say it's that significant. But we now have, I think it's four or five universities that have had student elections. And at every single university, the independents have made unprecedented wins, uh, in some cases taking the majority of seats. Now, student elections in Lebanon, as we know, are sort of basically this, this place where establishment parties have in the past fought out uh, what they then later fight out at parliamentary elections or local elections. They're kind of a bellwether or seen as a bellwether or some indicator of, you know, politics in the country where people are. So what we're seeing now, you know, about a year after the October uprising last year is that students uh, really have become sort of the the leading force for change in Lebanon. And so it's it's quite interesting that at the same moment where you have this sort of coming together of students, they two weeks ago launched this broad coalition with, I think it's, it's about 10, uh, more than 10 universities actually across the country. At the same time that's happening, you see administrations kind of, uh, you know, from the students' perspective at least, you know, uniting against students. AUB kind of is the first one to make this change. LAU follows very quickly. And we expect many other universities also to follow an increased tuition. Um, and so basically this is being seen as sort of the wider battle in this country uh, by the have-nots against the people who do have. And and it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a, a really sort of interesting reckoning moment here. Yeah, yeah. And and the uh, the fallout from this, of course, is that what, what happens to the next generation, right? So there, there are the people who are going to either be leaving campus and trying to find a job, which isn't really going to work, or in a lot of cases, probably just leaving the country. A massive, just like, if we thought brain drain was a problem before, and <laughs> brain drain was a perennial topic for the past 10 plus years in this country, well, now it, it's it's on steroids. It, it, it has to be necessarily because of the crisis and because of the actions of these universities. Well, I think, I think the important point there is that, you know, brain drain has historically been a, a thing in Lebanon, but it was kind of facilitated by the fact that the country was to some extent still afloat. Uh, I think that today what a lot of students are facing and why you're seeing this increase in, in activism and organizing is because many people just can't leave. You yeah. know, their, their family savings have disappeared. Their savings have disappeared. The, the queues at embassies and the airport are growing ever longer. And it, the barrier to actually getting out of this country is increasing. And so you're basically seeing, I think, many people who are being forced to come to terms with the idea of staying here. And that really pushes them to, to sort of decide, OK, well, we can't live in a country like this. We have to do something about it. Right. Bizarrely, you almost see this thing of like you you learn in biology about the fight or flight response. Right. Uh, not that that is exactly happening here, but in effect, the, the, the effect of it seems to be sort of like either you take off and get out of here or you stay. And if you stay, you fight. And that's what we saw last night, uh, Saturday with all of these uh, students and activists coming out and, you know, protesting in front of LAU, in front of AUB, having to get, uh, you know, the, the security forces responded, shooting tear gas, clearing them out. A faction of them went around and smashed up some banks uh, and uh, closed some roads with uh, burning uh, garbage or burning garbage bins. And this is reminiscent of other scenes that we have seen over the past year and a couple of months since the October 17th revolution right. and even before, uh, if you recall. And this is one of those things that just shows you, oh, this is not this, this is not done. This is the fight is ongoing. And now maybe there are going to be people who do leave, but the people who stay, what are their choices? Stay in or fight?
Right. Yeah. And this is basically something to follow from here. I think follow this thread uh, over the next couple of years uh, towards when we're supposed to have elections in 2022. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Of, of course, uh, one of the things that might keep people from going out and demonstrating is coronavirus. And we got some news just today. We're recording on Sunday. The Interior Ministry has extended uh, last week's restrictions, which right now we've got this curfew until uh, that begins at 11.30 p.m. They extended it, uh, interestingly, until Wednesday. And then on Wednesday, we have a recommendation for the Ministerial COVID Committee that actually that, that curfew gets pushed back until 3 a.m., I guess, for the Christmas period and the holiday period, which is something that happened because of lobbying from uh, different groups like restaurants, bars, nightclubs. But that's not necessarily the right action to take, even though, okay, I understand it is the holidays, people should be together, but we are in extraordinary times right now. And as if to like put the icing on the cake, yesterday we found out that one of the ministers who goes to these ministerial COVID meetings, Bartine Ohanian, tested positive for COVID, uh, which, I mean, come on, you're basically on the committee, you attend these things. Of course, this is the same committee that recommended a, a later curfew and everything, uh, which is absolutely ridiculous because we had the lockdown, then they lifted the lockdown. Now, in, in the lockdown, we were actually starting to, you know, flatten the curve a bit, and we saw lower numbers of infections. And now, this past week, we've seen those start to go back up. Both Wednesday and Friday, we had new infection numbers over 2,000, uh, which hadn't happened since mid-November, basically a month a month ago. Uh, Before the lockdown. Right? Like at the very beginning of the lockdown, right, yeah. that was the last day of 2,000 plus cases per day. And so this is coming back. And I mean, just from a basic public health perspective, you look at this and think, my God, what are they doing? What are they thinking? Uh, but but this is this is where we're at today. Uh, luckily, the ICU situation isn't uh, hasn't deteriorated too much, but we're still just sitting on the edge. You know, more than four and five ICU beds in the country are full, and it, it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to think of, oh, well, if the case numbers start going up again, then once again we could be caught in this thing where, oh no, we have to race and try to really boost the ICU capacity, otherwise we'll see a lot of people start to die. Uh, and we're we're sitting there right on the edge. And what are the policymakers doing? They are apparently getting ready to make the, the to to weaken things, to loosen the restrictions, but also getting COVID at the same time themselves. And, it, and it's an I mean, it's you know, you if you put yourself in the place of these policymakers, you understand that you're you're in a country where where people are basically holding on by a shoestring, right? Whether mm -hmm. it's restaurants, bars, all of these businesses. They are, you know, in incredibly hurt by the, the past year of COVID. Um, and it, there is a certain amount of political capital that I think that Lebanese leaders just don't have. Um, and and I, th I think, you know, when you contrast these measures to measures that have been taken in a vastly different country, Germany, you actually had Angela Merkel come out out and you know tell a, a big conference like listen i understand that you want to go out and meet your family i'm very sorry but if the cost of that is 500 plus deaths a day we simply can't do it and she got applause right and and now germany has instituted a hard lockdown over new year uh christmas yeah. and new year 
that's just hard to imagine in Lebanon. I mean, there was an, uh, an attempt to put put a lockdown in place, uh, right, like, uh, I think a month after the blast. And there was just sort of like an open revolt against that. I mean, businesses and, and people just decided no. And then we saw the, the, the authorities actually, you know, taking a step back and, and not putting it in place. So it's, it's one of those things. It's a catch-22 in Lebanon where things are so, so bad that trying to do this, you know, you're, you're between a rock and a hard place. Like if, if you do it, you, you, you hurt businesses, you can't provide them with aid because you don't have money. Um, and then if you do, you, 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 you know, you save the healthcare sector, but you hurt these businesses. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, and, and by the way, I should mention if, if I sound a little bit muffled, it's because I'm, we're actually wearing masks right now because we're sitting, sitting right next to each other. <laughs> so hopefully the masks work. Sacrificing for for the podcast. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, so we were we were supposed to have something really really big happening this week, and that is Papa Macron was coming back to town. Uh, Emmanuel Macron, the uh, president of France, was supposed to be visiting Tuesday and Wednesday of this week, but then we learned late last week that he got COVID, so the the trip is off. Uh, will most likely be postponed until some other date. But before we learned all of this, we saw something very interesting. That was, it seemed as though, as though uh, the, the high rankings Omar in the country, the, the big leaders were really putting a lot of effort into at least seeming as though they were trying to get something done. So we, we had all this flurry of activity between Saad Hariri, the prime minister designate, and Michel Aoun, the president, uh, about forming a government and uh, renewed visits, and then like this massive war of words between the two when nothing really worked out. Hariri submitted like an 18-member cabinet lineup, which Aoun didn't like. And 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 basically we seem to be, you know, there there has been no substantive progress on this. Yeah. However, the amount of uh, words and recriminations uh, has gone up exponentially uh, over the past, you know, week or so. And we see from this that definitely the politicians were trying to actually move the ball on this or at very least show that they were trying to do something as to deflect blame, which seems to be more the case, right? Like, oh, no, I tried, but it's the other guy's fault that this didn't get done. I submitted this, you know, lineup for a cabinet, but I wouldn't accept it or uh, vice versa. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that the sort of the interesting point here and, and the key point, which is kind of like tells you the, about the, the atmosphere and how people feel in the country right now is that when Macron's visit was canceled, when the announcement was made, you basically had like m many people just kind of lamenting the fact that he didn't discover he had COVID after he met Lebanese <laughs> politicians, uh, including, you know, the octogenarian president, the parliament yeah. speaker, people who would be in the very at risk category. Um, yeah. But it, it tells you a lot that like a vast and, you know, these are like people who are like university professors and like respected analysts basically making this casual point that, hey, it would have been great if Macron came and gave our leaders this disease and they died from it. Right. Yeah. And and, and th that really tells you something about where we are in Lebanon today, the amount of anger uh, against these people. It's been a year since Hassan Diab, uh, the current outgoing uh, prime minister, was designated a year ago. He was first designated. And and. Can anyone really point to any kind of improvement? No, you can't. Can we point to even, you know, basic things like, you know, legislation and reforms that could? No, we can't. And, and so it's just another marker of how much time has passed, how little has happened. That Macron came with this initiative. He came the first time, you know, uh, and, and then he came the second time, proposed this sort of plan, which was then completely ignored. He, he made the sort of uh, he waved the carrot of billions of dollars 
and you know the stick of if you don't do it i'll sanction you and then backtracked on sanctions there's a real question here of what he was coming to do this time around i mean he was going to meet the the french troops that make uh, you know the french troops in, in unifil uh, the un peacekeeping forces and he was supposedly going to meet Lebanese politicians the day after. But it's really unclear sort of what he had in his arsenal of things that could push them to do anything. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you you talked about uh, stick and carrots there. Well, that that carrot of billions and billions of dollars, that, that's been around for years. You yeah, know, yeah. like at very least, uh, uh, you, you can trace it very directly to the Cedric conference in April 2018. That was under Macron. That was, uh, you know. $11 billion in aid for the country. And that did nothing. That had basically zero effect on actually getting reforms implemented in Lebanon. So, I mean, what, what can you offer beyond that? Uh, you know, the even more billions of dollars? I, I don't know. That, that clearly doesn't work. The sanctions doesn't really seem to have worked either. No. So I don't really understand what the calculus was. And, oh, well, we'll go back for a third time triple down on this strategy that has absolutely failed so far. But I, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the French are smart. I, I can't imagine that they would just like go in with no plan again. Uh, or, or Well, it or was that the, the first plan. time, right? I mean, this is the thing is that Macron's first visit here with the, this French initiative, it was actually supposedly made up on the fly, right? Macron yeah. arrived here and didn't actually know what he was going to do. Uh, and we know this thanks to good reporting by your publication, Lorient Le Jour, uh, well, your sister publication, yeah. Lorient Le Jour, uh, sort of how that French initiative came together. I think that the most likely and least sexy reason that he keeps coming back is, for me is just... The fact that the French have a lot invested in this. They have many people at the embassy here who are working on this. They have sort of programs and plans ready. Um, in, in France, you have many people who sort of like the formerly ambassadors here or, or, or things like that. And so you have a lot of emphasis on Lebanon. They don't want to sort of step away and declare this initiative dead. Um, and so I guess he was coming and was going to see the troops and he was trying to put some pressure. I think just by virtue of him coming, that's sort of, as we've seen it, it makes Lebanese politicians sort of scupper and scramble with it. Uh, right. but, but it doesn't really seem to lead anywhere. Yeah. And, and another uh, another part of this scramble, uh, it seems, is the parliament session that was scheduled before we learned about Macron's diagnosis for tomorrow, for Monday. So Parliament is supposed to meet for a one-day session, and they're supposed to get everything done. So Parliament is uh, scheduled to, uh, to meet on, on Monday, when you're probably listening to this, for a, a legislative session with sort of 68 uh, laws and amendments to laws on the agenda. And some of the important ones are a law criminalizing sexual harassment, including in the workplace. There's a law for a temporary unemployment fund. There's a law to return the money transferred out of Lebanon after uh, October 17th, you know, the date of the protest. There's two pieces of legislation looking to address banking secrecy. Uh, one of them, which is basically about lifting bank banking secrecy on everyone who was in public office since 1990. There's a law to cr uh, increase punishment for those uh, smuggling subsidized goods. There's laws to raise subsidies on some medication. There's also a law uh, about enforcing a forensic audit of the central bank. Uh, another one allowing loans to be paid back in local currency and a law uh, forcing all universities to accept payment in local currency, which, you know, comes after the massive tuition hikes at several universities. There's also legislation to give uh, 300 billion uh, support to private schools. Uh, there's two amnesty bills. There's one that's a general amnesty and one that's sort of a, a specific amnesty that aims to address pr prison overcrowding uh, with COVID. Uh, there, there's several more, including a nature reserve, a law to end tax breaks for religious sects. 
Uh, but there's also notably some things that are missing. Um, and one of the, the major sort of elephants in the room here is the capital controls law, which it's been 14 months since this <laughs> crisis began in Lebanon, right? It's been more than a year. And it's been more than a year that we're hearing about capital controls. But still to this day, we don't have legislation controlling capital and, and the way it comes out and goes into banks. I mean, it's completely ridiculous. Uh, yeah. In the meanwhile, we have reports of billions of dollars being transferred out by politicians and those connected with them. And even investigations into that are stalled because, as we found out yesterday, the central bank is refusing to hand over the names of the people who transferred, the politically exposed people who transferred money abroad to the public prosecutor, right? And the, and the banks themselves, like they, yeah. they, the, the BDL, according to a, a document that Mohammed Zabib, the economic independent economic journalist, tweeted you know, it, it was from BDL saying, oh, no, banking secrecy, we cannot tell you, even though you are the public prosecutor, we cannot tell you any of this stuff because of banking secrecy. Right. And and so the important point when, when we talk about all of these laws that are being passed and or will be passed, uh, the important thing to remember is that in Lebanon, there are more than 50 laws that just aren't implemented. They went through parliament. Some of them have decrees that were passed, but they're just not implemented. Um, and so we basically have a system where decisions are regularly taken and they're just not implemented. The, the recent example of this is this uh, this uh, law called Dollar Talibi, which is basically to allow the families of students who are studying abroad to transfer up to $10,000 for their studies. Well, Parliament passed that and everyone says, OK, perfect. Central Bank says they're going to implement it. The banks say they're going to implement it, but it's still not implemented. Um, and so th this is sort of this decaying system we have. So the, the, the important point is, if today they pass this, you know, anti-sexual harassment law, if they pass this law lifting banking secrecy, if they pass the laws forcing an audit of the central bank, take it with a grain of salt, because basically you have a, a parliament, a, a government and a central bank and banking, uh, private banks who are all kind of in cahoots with each other, all cover each other. And in the end, it's sort of uh, all about power, uh, uh, whether something gets implemented or not. Right, right, right. It, it very much depends whose interests these laws serve, whether they actually get implemented or not. That much has become clear. Uh, but I mean, I just just looking at the scale of what Parliament's trying to do. If I if I were you know new to the country and I you know landed in Lebanon yesterday and I saw this. Uh, oh, this this gigantic agenda that Parliament's trying to do. I'd be very impressed. I'd be like, wow, these lawmakers have their shit together. This is amazing. Oh, They're yeah. doing all of this stuff. Uh, but if you know anything about how Parliament works here, you know that really isn't the case. That that really it looks as though they've just slapped together this enormous session of Parliament, squeezing everything into a single day on laws that really haven't like it's not like they all of these laws have been through a very deliberate committee process. I'm sure many of them have been through committee, all of this stuff. But if you know the way that committees work, a lot of times they don't go from one committee to another. Nabi Birri, the speaker, calls a, uh, a session of the joint committees of parliament and they sort of like hash things out all together, sort of like a mini parliament. It's usually yeah. like, you know, half of parliament's members or a third of parliament's members are there and they decide what's, what it's going to be instead of it actually going through multiple committees. It's always sort of a last minute, oh, let's use the joint parliamentary uh, committees, which is uh, supposed to be for urgent stuff and stuff that doesn't have time to go through all of these normal committees. No, they put things off until the last minute and then they sort of slap things together and then hopefully something happens and hopefully something gets done. So yeah. what we have uh, as of Monday's session, they're supposed to get through 68 items. Uh, well, it's actually a bad idea if they rush through all of these items 
as yeah. we saw in the uh, debate over the budget, I believe the 2019 budget, when they went through and on the budget, you have to go article by article voting. And they basically just like sped through it all because they want to get done with this. And it ended up that there was a huge question over one of the articles. The president refused to sign it because even though his own nephew was sitting there right next to Debbie Berry, I believe, like yeah. while this article was being discussed, and his own nephew didn't uh, know exactly, you know, none of the MPs seemed to have a clear idea of what was actually voted on. And somehow the final text of the bill ended up being a certain way that some MPs thought, I didn't vote for that. Exactly. You know, yeah. and so. And so if they actually do speed through things tomorrow, that's a very, very bad thing because I could just introduce more uncertainty or, uh, you know, th things that get missed because they are not doing their due diligence on these right. things. Speaking of uncertainty, we have the whole issue of subsidies uh, and the uh, the actual contract that we have for the import of fuel into this country. So. On subsidies, uh, we basically, uh, you know, for, for many months, there's been talk of lifting subsidies on basically the essentials, medicine, fuel, and uh, wheat. We seem to be getting closer and closer to that precipice. The central bank has said they only have about $800 million left, which is about two months for, for subsidies. And that which was is, at the beginning of December. Exactly. And that was at the beginning of December. Yeah. And and, and uh, we're, we're not sure on the timeline, right? Maybe Riyad Saleme, the, the central bank governor, is telling the truth when he says like, oh, no, I, I can't allow this or, or anything. But if he's still in office and they don't, uh, you know, politicians don't do anything to change the laws or force him to uh, comply with anything, he has said, no, I'm not going to use any more dollars other than this, you know, last 800 million or whatever that's left, and then subsidies are done. And so what, what we've seen over the past few weeks is uh, politicians also scrambling on this a bit, but then it seems as though nothing, nothing big has come out of this in the past week or so, other than uh, the economy minister, uh, Raul Name coming out and saying, okay, I've got this plan. And it's actually quite an interesting plan. Uh, it, it's something like $50 per month for uh, anyone in Lebanon or any Lebanese person who wants it, who is uh, over 23 years of age. I don't know why 23, that seems uh, an arbitrary age. But it, essentially, other than that, it's more or less sort of a universal basic income kind of, which is quite interesting quite innovative. Uh, there, there are obviously a lot of problems with the plans uh, such as this, but this, this is the one thing that's come out of it so far. I, I, I mean, it, it seems quite doubtful whether this will actually go anywhere. It's, you know, one minister without any sort of big political backing doing this, but, uh, you know, credit where credit's due, at least somebody is presenting some sort of a plan. But otherwise, we don't have have any decision and the clock keeps ticking down as you say so what's going to happen with this i don't know i mean we're, we're all going into christmas break sort of in the dark on this yeah and and it's important just to note here very quickly that the way subsidies have been done up till now is like if, if there's a smart way to do subsidies this is the stupid way to do subsidies right uh the way <laughs> yeah, it's been yeah, done is yeah. basically uh if if a guy who makes um, uh, you know a hundred million dollars a year goes to a gasoline station and a guy who makes $600 a year goes to a gasoline station, they both get subsidies on their fuel, right? The yeah. same when they buy their bread and the same way they buy when they buy their medication. Yeah. And so you basically have, according to the former finance minister, Ali Hassan Khalil, 75% of the, the money spent on subsidies going to people who don't actually need it, while only 25% of the actual money spent 
goes to the people who do need it. And so it's just stupid subsidies because of this, again, because of, you know, the way uh, things are in Lebanon with, you know, the way public administrations are run, the lack of any kind of e-governance. It's really hard to sort of institute a system where you target subsidies to the right people. And they failed right. to do that. And, and so now we're at a point where we've spent the vast majority of subsidies on people who don't need it. Uh, the amount of poor people is ever increasing. And they're, they're still talking around these like, you know, weird plans that they don't have any consensus on. And it's just like racing towards a cliff at the same time when a contract for the import of fuel from the Algerian state company Sonatrack is finishing at the end of this year. We've known that it was going to finish since March or April when there was this massive scandal about the import of fuel. Um, but again, we have, uh, you know, the energy ministry wanted to do a tender to import fuel that went back and forth between the tenders department and the energy ministry. And now we basically have nothing to show for it. And the year is over. This contract is about to end. And as always happens in this country, instead of having a transparent, thought through way of doing something, we're now in sort of the last minute. I forgot to do my homework, copy it from my friend moment where they basically get to decide on these deals that they make in back rooms between each other. And that's that's not how you run a country, um, but that is the way it's done, sadly. And, and we're probably looking at some kind of backroom deal that will either see the contract extended by some manner, uh, or we will import fuel on a, on a ship-by-ship basis, which is really bad in the long run because you're not getting the best price. Um, uh, but, but that's the situation we've been presented with. Yeah, uh, absolutely, and 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 this is one of those things again where we see whose interest does this serve? Again, it it it's these people who are already sort of in the game or who have had these contracts before or who are politically connected because that's who has access to these back rooms, right? So if there is a backroom deal, it's going to benefit the elite again. A hundred percent. It would be a good thing if the elite get benefits in this case because it means that there's more electricity for all of us, but it's it's a very steep price to pay. It's right? as LBCI put it in a in a report they did yesterday. It's al-hatma or sar'a. Yani basically, it's darkness or or thievery. Uh, so you get to choose. You want darkness or do you want electricity? But we're gonna have some kind of deal, and then it'll be you know some thievery in the background. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So I think all of this leads up to the the main thing that we want to uh, dig into today, and and that's dealing with the most important case of accountability uh, that, that we've seen so far, right? So we, we have this massive, massive hunger in the country, just, you know, in the street, uh, amongst the people for some sort of accountability for, for the leaders, for the politicians, for the bankers, for all of these people. And we saw that very much in the October 17th up uprising. And then uh, with the port blast on August 4th, that was just renewed and renewed. I think on a on a on a much you know deeper level. Like oh my god, you the the elite have blown up half of Beirut. Yeah. Uh, they and and that's that's when you started seeing a lot more people starting to say oh no, hang the politicians. You know, just kill them all. You know, right. which is <laughs> big escalation in the rhetoric. And it's because wh what have they done? Uh, they they have managed to ruin you know uh, ruin the country, steal people's life savings. Uh, or, or make it so that people's life, life savings just no longer exists. And also you have the port blast, you know, and now we have the end of subsidies, which is, means that really the all of these effects of the financial crisis, which we've been talking about, you know, that's one thing. Those are very, very real. But if there are no longer subsidies, 
then we are going to see the financial crisis finally, like truly start to hit home for people. Yeah. Once the price of bread, once the price of uh, basic food items, medicine, medical supplies, stuff like that starts to increase, starts to be out of reach for certain people, that's when you start to see uh, this crisis really starting to bite. And so accountability, it really is the number one word right now in, in Lebanese politics. And we saw, okay, so we, we have this effort to do that, I guess, uh, at least uh, in the context of the Beirut port blast. Uh, but that effort seems to have stalled. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's it's very important there that, you know, that prompts on sort of accountability. And, and before we get into the details of this Beirut blast, uh, you know, investigation that's now, you know, four months old, I, I think it's very important to say that the blast basically showed the decay of Lebanon's system. It showed everything wrong from the way in which correspondence is sent between administrations in these sort of old letters that you can't, you know, you can sort of put in a drawer and you don't reply to, all, all the way up to the top, which is the way ministers sort of dealt with this, uh, you know, just leaving it there, passing the buck to other people. And there's also these allegations that in the background, there is some kind of sinister corruption that led to this. And so accountability for the port blast is seen by many as not just limited to the investigation, which is sort of the criminal component, but it's basically accountability needs to sort of address the, the whole systemic issue in Lebanon, which, which goes from, you know, e-governance and the lack of transparency in parliament to, to cabinet and to the corrupt people in government. It's sort of a systemic change that needs to happen to have real accountability for this blast, both in my opinion and in the opinion of, of many people. Now, if we get to the actual probe itself, this probe is sort of to look at, you know, who is actually criminally responsible for what happened. For the, for several months, the, the lead investigator, Fadi Sawan, had sort of been keeping it to low and mid-level officials. Uh, he detained uh, around 25 people and charged some 30 people. Uh, and the, the highest ranking among them was the customs director, Badri Daher, who really, in the grand scheme of things, is a, is a low-ranking official in the Lebanese state. Uh, we also had the head of the port and the head of a department in the public works ministry that oversees the port. Um, so he called in some top ranking officials, uh, but basically as witnesses, he brought them in for just a few minutes. Uh, by some reports, uh, interrogations or, or the, the witness statements lasted between five minutes and 15 minutes. Um, you know, they would come in, he would make coffee for them uh, <sighs> and, and sort of just have a chat yeah. and, and they would yeah. leave on a very sort of happy note and sort of handshake and OK, bye bye, maybe fist bump during COVID times. Which but, yeah made made everybody the, the the amount of time who was getting who was getting uh, charged uh, the the amount of time it was taking to get anything done and then this coming yeah. out made everybody think oh my god this is a cover up that's going on Fadi Salwan is one of you know he's a he's a member of the ruling elite and he's just protecting everybody's backs exactly and this had a lot to do with the way he was selected it was a completely intransparent process just completely opaque the justice minister had selected two people before him but they were sort of turned down or stepped down and he was the third candidate there were all kinds of questions about his closeness to the military establishment to the free patriotic movement who he has showed deference to in the past but we we, we reached the stage where i think the general sense and uh, among people was okay this is going to be another cover-up um, and, and we are going to you know, remain at these low to mid-level officials, and, and that's going to be it. Then in late November, Sawan sends a letter to Parliament. And in that letter, he basically says, I have serious suspicions, quote, serious suspicions about the involvement of all prime ministers since 2013, which is when the ammonium nitrate entered Beirut's port uh, aboard a cargo ship for the first time. So he has suspicions about all prime ministers who have served since that time and all ministers of justice, public works, and finance 
who served during that time. And that's basically because those ministers either oversee the judiciary or the port or the customs department. And, and we've seen uh, people both at customs and the port detained. So the, 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 the sort of string leads up to the ministers there because they right. are the ones in charge at the time. So one sends this letter to Parliament on the 24th of November. And two days later, uh, one and a half days later, even, he gets a response from Parliament saying, we have found no suspicions uh, on any of these people. <laughs> and, and that's sort of it. Uh, and and so, I mean, we're, we're, we're sort of in this moment there where Biri, you know, I was at the session where, where Biri brought this up and he sort of made light of it. He's like, yeah, he sent me this letter in this form and, and we just like send it back. And it was this incredible moment where you have a blast that really it destroyed the capital. It killed 200 people. It injured more than 6,000. And the lead investigator has sent a letter to parliament saying, listen, I have suspicions about these people. And the Speaker of Parliament doesn't even show the letter to Parliament. He just says, oh, yeah, we, we, we replied. We did what we had to do. And, and the important point here is no MPs protested. No MPs said, hey, well, can we actually see the letter? No, you know, because it would be wrong for Parliament to do its role. So we, we at that point, we thought, well, well, crap. So one has tried, tried this. Maybe it was sort of just a, a move, you know, to, to kind of sh a showmanship kind of thing where he's like, listen, I'll try with, with Parliament. They'll say no. I've kicked it in their court and, and it's sort of done with. Then the big surprise, uh, two weeks later, on the 10th of December, we, we get the news that Sawan has charged Hassan Diab, the outgoing prime minister, and three former ministers with criminal negligence. The former ministers, Ali Hassan Khalil, who was the finance minister, and two public works ministers, uh, Ghadi Zaitar and Yusuf Fanyanos. So that was that was a shock to everyone. I think no one really expected that. And, yeah. and, it's, and it's sort of difficult to see what happened uh, in between that period where someone goes from really limiting, limiting it by all accounts to low level officials. Um, and, and then sort of charging these ministers who basically sources close to Sawan had, had told me and also like other publications, Sawan considered these people out of his reach. He didn't, he, you know, he subscribed to this idea that immunity uh, was, was enough to sort of prevent him from charging them and that it basically is parliament's job to do this at this special high tribunal that has never been activated and <laughs> never held anyone accountable. It's yeah. sort of the anti court. Yeah. It's, the, it's the way to bury anything. Um, and it's, it's a main reason why no one has been held accountable, because in the judge, in the past, judges have simply said, listen, it's, it's the Constitution said it's with this court. That has been sort of pushed back against by all independent bodies, uh, including the Beirut Bar Association, Legal Agenda and the Judges Club. These are three independent legal bodies who have all kind of said, no, you do not get immunity from you know, being connected to a massive explosion that destroyed the capital and killed 200 people. You get immunity from like some political statement that you made, or if you if you get if you do high treason, then you're tried at the specialized court. But if you commit a criminal act, if you kill someone, then we try you in a normal court because your duty as a as a minister is not you know connected to people's lives and deaths. Um, and so that is right. something that is that is completely outside of the sphere of political immunity. We're all surprised and immediately, immediately when Sawan files these charges, we see the coming together of all of the Lebanese politicians and religious establishments against the judge, which, which you could really ex yeah. expect, you know, but it's everyone from Hariri to Hezbollah and Amal and, uh, you know, Dar al-Fatwa, which is the highest Sunni authority in the country, basically all coming together and saying, no, 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 you cannot charge the prime minister. That is, uh, you know, unconstitutional. That is basically an attack on the Sunnis in Lebanon because the prime ministership is for Sunnis. 
Important note here is that Hariri and Co., you know, the former prime ministers, basically staked their whole uh, campaign in the past year on the fact that Hassan Diab doesn't represent Sunnis. But all of a sudden, <laughs> when he's charged, he is the the Sunni prime minister who is being targeted because he's the Sunni, right? Yeah, well, there's, this, there, there's a red line there because there are actual consequences if they let Hassan Diab, if they allow this precedent of allowing the even even a prime minister that you really don't like to be, uh, you know, prosecuted or charged, then, oh, well, you, you mentioned that, you know, former prime ministers since yeah. 2013. Who might those be, Ben? Who who served Ooh. since 2013? Might it be Saad Hariri himself and oh. Tamam Salam, who also came out in support of Diab? Well, yes, they actually served for the longest period since 2013. Right. So, yeah. Hassan Diab, like you said, was only nominated a year ago. He's yeah. only been in office since January. Yeah. So if something is, you know, goes against him, well, certainly then Hariri and right. Salam would both, you know, face some sort of scrutiny. Now, both of them are sitting MPs, so they enjoy this other kind of immunity that's right. special for MPs, right? But it's interesting, I think, that Fadi Saman also brought charges against two sitting MPs, as if right. it's almost like he's trying to test out the different immunities that could right. come into play here yes. and see, you know, how how different actors respond and see whether it actually is possible to go higher and to charge Hariri, for instance. And it's a super important process because basically this raises the question of who does this immunity serve? Who does banking secrecy serve in Lebanon today, yeah. right? And and the point is that immunity, if, if you're trying to sort of pursue a case of the one of the, you know, the fourth biggest non-nuclear explosion in history, and, and you have serious suspicions about prime ministers and, and ministers, then immunity should not stand in your way, right? I mean, this is, we're talking about people's lives here. Yeah. And so there's this whole question about these, these old sort of antiquated, ossified red lines of Lebanese politics that are sort of just this sort of, uh, you know, a remnant of, of a time and a, a, a way of doing things that no longer makes sense today. When you're in a collapsed country uh, because of a system that has been in place for at least 30 years, you simply can't keep going on as you were before. And, and so that's what Fadi Sawan is coming up against here. And, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, important because I was asked, you know, do I, do I now have faith in the investigation? Because everyone oh. was sort of saying like, okay, this is a done deal. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I have faith, but we work on the information we have. And if you have a judge today who has made this move, which honestly I see as quite a suicidal move in Lebanese politics. You know, if you are going against a sitting prime minister and three former ministers, two of which are tied to the Speaker of Parliament, you know, Nabih Berri is, is pretty much the, the strongest politician in Lebanon today. If you're going against these people, then you're kind of, you know, you're kind of making it difficult for yourself in the future. You are no longer going to be that judge who they can sort of uh, feel comfortable with appointing or, or giving you some kind of a raise or a superior position. You're, you're, you're taking quite a, a difficult step here. And, and, you know, th basically people who have been against Sawan uh, or have, have pointed out a lot of the flaws in the investigation, including local people like Legal Agenda and, and you know, internationals like Human Rights Watch, have all come out and commended this step, right? And I think it's important that we sort of work on the basis of, of what he's doing rather than sort of, you know, drawing conclusions. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, it, and, and, and that's the thing, like, it's, it's very hard to divine what he's actually going for. You know, like I mentioned that... It's, it's, it's possibly, it's almost like he's testing the different immunities yeah. or something, but that's reading in a level of uh, motivation that I don't think that we have the evidence really to support that. I mean, if you look at who he charged, you also see sort of imbalances politically, right? right? There were no March 14th people who were charged. It was 
March 8th people, and specifically no one connected to the free patriotic movement. Right. The closest was Hassan Diab himself, but he's an independent, right? You have yeah. Amal, uh, two people from Amal charge, and one person from the Madada movement charge. Yeah. And so it's it it he he is definitely going against you know, big political powers here. And yes, yeah. Nabi Birri is very, very strong, but he's not going up against all of them at the same time. He's not trying to go up against Birri and Aoun at the same time, or Birri, Aoun, and Hariri at the same time. No, right. uh, it, it's minor people uh, in, in in the political scheme of things, uh, except for Nabi Birri's guys. Right, yeah. And and the, the important point there is that, you know, what what... People who speak to the uh, uh, Sawan regularly say is that he basically is 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 looking to charge more people. It's not done here, right? He is moving forward with this investigation, and he was going to uh, bring in the the former chief of staff of the army, um, and that was sort of a pre preparatory move to bring in the former head of the army, Jean Ahouaji, who has not been questioned at, uh, at all. And there was also talk that listen, I mean, this guy in a this judge in a letter to Parliament said he has suspicions about all of these people, right? What you'd expect is that he's going to draw from that list of people. Uh, when when he charges them for criminal negligence, so it's it's not done. He did start with these people. Perhaps it's a smart move in terms of trying to not bite off more than you can chew. I mean, look at the massive sort of political backlash there was to this decision to charge four people. You can only imagine if he came out with a charge against everyone at the same time, right? Right. right so right. so, and and the the other interesting thing is that, and it sort of baffled me since uh, for months is that. The, the families of victims meet with someone and they have done so several times. And when I've spoken to them, they have always, they have never had bad things to say. Um, and it makes me wonder whether, you know, they they were being told something that that we don't know in general. And obviously they would keep that secret. Yeah. But they would always say, listen, we have full confidence. We we are putting our hands in his hands and, and you know, we, we don't want to preempt the trial. We don't want to say who should be charged, but we have confidence that someone will go to the top. And so that's just a, a little, you know, aside there that, hey, if the, if the families of victims, the people who are the, supposed to be the most angry and have sort of the least to lose here in terms of, you know, they've already lost oh, everything. Yeah. If, if they're feeling that way, then, hey, maybe there's something they know that we don't know. Um, but basically now we're at this point where the investigation has been suspended for 10 days. And that's because, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking this good game, but then what happened over the past couple of weeks here, yeah. uh, someone ran into so much, we, we were just talking about how like, okay, yeah, it is far reaching in a certain way, but it's very much not far reaching in other ways. And yet, even with this sort of like very limited charges, and by the way, these are not charges for prosecution. These are like sort of preliminary charges that allows uh, for interrogation. And then there would be actual charges if they go to uh, right. If they go to trial. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So this is, this is, you know, quite limited. But even with this limited, uh, uh, you know, push uh, by, by Fadi Sawan, he's run into enormous, enormous uh, resistance to the point where, yeah, uh, we have uh, two of the MPs, uh, the, the two MPs that were uh, charged. They came out and said, we want this guy removed. And right. so in, in addition to that, we have people just not showing up for their interrogations. Yep. Weirdly, if they do show up, Vignano showed up, but it was rescheduled uh, yeah. bizarrely, I, which makes me wonder what the hell Sawan is, was doing. Uh, but anyway... As of now, it's been suspended for 10 days. Right, till the 27th of December. And, and so one basically said, these people filed this motion to, to change, you know, to get me removed from the case. 
I need to give it 10 days for all parties, including myself, to respond to this. And then I'll resume investigation. But this is extremely troubling for me. And, and you know, I think for anyone who covers Lebanon or Lebanese politics, as soon as you, you know, someone was picking up momentum. He was yeah. picking up momentum and, and he was charging people. He was calling people in for investigation. This just, you know, stops it. And, yeah. and so that is, is troubling. Why? Because in Lebanon, basically the, the, the main policy, if there is a policy, is delaying things. And Lebanon has, you know, Lebanese politicians are, are masters at delaying things. You can look at the capital controls law. You can look at the Sonatrack contract, you know, that we were talking about <laughs> yeah, earlier. Yeah. Lebanese politicians are masters at just pushing things and pushing things in the hope that you can either, in this case, you know, uh, and this is my analysis here, but if, if you're these uh, politicians, what you're hoping for is either to sort of change his mind, However, you may do that. You know, there are sinister ways that politicians do that. There are uh, incentive-driven uh, ways that <laughs> yeah. politicians do that. Yeah. They could also just uh, continue to try and work up ways to obstruct him, or they could remove him from the case, right? And and so anytime something like this stops, it's a cause for lots of concern. Yeah, and and we have right now, so on the 27th thing is pick back up. Uh, and then supposedly on the fourth now uh, is when Al Yassin Khalil and Ghazi Zaitar are supposed to be questioned. Right. But and <laughs> I mean, this is, this is another interesting point where it's like, oh, OK, supposedly they could be questioned then even though they're sitting in peace because parliament will no longer be in session. But I don't know. I, I wonder about that because they've been called into extraordinary session for most of the time for the past couple of years yeah. when they were their term had ended. So will Michelle Aoun do that again this year? Will Michelle Aoun and Saad Harari agree to uh, call parliament into extraordinary session, as is the norm uh, right. in these times? Or will they not so that better these guys get face pressure to be interrogated? Right. I, yeah. I think that's something that we should watch out for here. Yeah. Uh, but it. But I, I think the larger point here, uh, just pulling back, it goes yeah. back to what you were saying about these immunities being used effectively as a shield against criminal prosecution and against accountability. And we see this with uh, immunity because immunity here, it doesn't apply to you and me. It doesn't apply to normal people in Lebanon. Immunity applies to those in power. It applies to MPs. It applies to ministers, former ministers, the president. Uh, former presidents, that sort of a thing. It essentially is a set of rules written into the constitution and laws that protect the ruling elite. Right. Full stop. That's what this is. And so when they say, oh, immunity, 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 it, you know, there, it sounds like a very, oh, we live by the rule Look, of law, yeah. you know, we must follow the constitution. But really, if you look at this, it, it's just, oh, we don't want to do that. We have made rules, or our our fathers, and in a lot of cases, their literal fathers and grandfathers made these rules, yeah. and well, they protect us, and we are not going to change them. Yeah, it's it's a system of laws and regulations that are entirely self-serving, and more than that, even if if there is gray area on the implementation of a law, and we see this repeatedly with the central bank, Riyad Saleme is both the the sort of uh, protector and the sole interpreter of the laws, right? So if there's a, a gray area in a piece of legislation, Riyad Salemi is the one who sort of twists it into shape and, and makes it suit his needs. And we see the same thing all across the board, whether it's in the presidential palace, whether it's in parliament, you, you have these institutions that are, are entirely self-serving. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, that this is very a very very important point is that it's not just like immunity is an issue all by itself banking secrecy is an issue all by itself 
uh, these two things, these are the primary things or other things as well, I believe. But these two things are are the means that, you know, the this uh, ruling class is now using to protect itself. Uh, and sometimes they rely on, I mean, it, it, it comes down to interpretation in a lot of cases, like you say, and the the effective interpretation always seems to come down on one side. A hundred percent. And and so th that's why this sort of battle over immunity and accountability, uh, whether it be in the port blast or on, on the issue of like a, a forensic audit of, of the central bank, really is in a, in a sense uh, a question of the kind of country that we want to have. And it's, it, it is in many ways a fight for accountability across the board in Lebanon. Nizar Sari, you know, the, the founder of the legal agenda, has done a really good job of sort of characterizing this issue this way. He notes that in, in, you know, in corruption cases from telecoms to energy, you over and over have ministers saying, well, I am immune and, and I, you know, you, I would love to go to court, but hey, you know, just there's this law that's, that's preventing me from doing it. And it's, it's extremely disingenuous because these are the same political forces who for 12 years kept the country without a budget even though you obviously need a budget according to the constitution. Well, uh, without a budget, without these, like it, it's the exact same thing as a Sonatrack contract yeah. and the tenders, right? Exactly. If you don't have a budget, then that means you can just make backroom deals. Right, yeah. And so basically, I mean, as, as this year draws to a close, we have this continuing battle and this battle that really is, you know, I think from, from what we've spoken about today, you can sort of tell that there's this battle that's picking up on both side, sides and you have this basic battle for accountability, for a rules-based system and for rules that work in the favor of the people. Um, and, and whether it's students or the judiciary or, or wh whoever it may be fighting for more accountability, uh, it's, it's these politicians and this crooked system that are obviously fighting to maintain the status quo. And I think, uh, you know, you know, having covered this year of, of Lebanon, this really this horrible 14 months that, that we've had, I, I think that we just have to say no to the status quo. You know, it's just it's just not OK. We can't keep going like this. It's clear we can't keep going like this. Um, well, the and status this is, quo is going regardless, right? When yeah. subsidies do come to an end, like that's when the rubber is going to meet the road and you're yeah. going to have a lot of desperate people out there who want to hold somebody accountable for this precipitous drop. Uh, in in their ability just to live, you know, yeah. uh, and and, right. and, and so it's going the, to happen. If the status quo is is disappearing for the people, then why the fuck should we maintain it for the people in power, right? I mean, this is the issue, right? It's that for everyone on the street and every normal person in this country, your life has completely fall, fallen apart in the past year. But you have, for some reason, these politicians, and we know the reasons, who, who are saying that actually, no, this system that we have and these rules that we have in place should stay exactly how they are. Let's do some window dressing, but let's keep the system that led to this in place while everyone else's life falls apart. And it's just, it's just, it just, it's completely, you know, unacceptable to, to most people. And I, I think to, to you and me included, I mean, it's, it's just completely unacceptable. Right, right, right. No, and I, I, I agree. And I think, I think, unfortunately, though, we have to leave it there. Yeah. We've, <laughs> we've, yeah, we've overshot this. Is, this. This has flown by. Uh, yeah. Uh, we, we, I think, I feel like we could easily sit around for another like five hours discussing all of these things because there's yeah. just there is so much to get into, so many different facets of of this sort of battle right now that's being yeah. waged uh, against accountability, basic accountability. Uh, that yeah, we could talk for hours on it, but that's all the time we have for this week. I I hope that everybody out there, you stay safe. Uh, despite the loosening COVID restrictions, <laughs> absolute nuts, uh, absolute insanity, uh, and uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays to everybody. 
Uh, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Taymoud Azhedi. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.